Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season two. Uh, my name is Martin Duesenberry and in this season we are thinking about the theme of wealth and the writing of history. And we're particularly interested in exploring the theme of wealth in terms of uh, a number of different sub-themes. Uh, there's the idea of resources and climate change and natural wealth. There's the idea of labor and wealth, of knowledge and wealth, how we measure wealth, for example. And of course, there's the whole question of the history of capitalism, which seems to be so important these days. But a key aspect that we're going to be focusing on today is uh, the element of saving and wealth, and we're delighted to be able to be joined today by uh, the greatest expert on this at the moment, uh, Professor Sheldon Garin, who is Nissan Professor of History and East Asian Studies at Princeton University and the author of the uh, 2012 book, Beyond Our Means, Why America Spends While the World Saves. Professor Garin, thanks very much for being with us today. Oh, thanks. It's nice to be here. So let me ask you first... Um, Many of us in Japanese history will know you as a Japanese historian, primarily from your earlier work. Certainly, um, the book that you wrote before, Beyond Our Means, was Molding Japanese Minds, which came out in 1997, which was a book about moral suasion campaigns in the mid-20th century. How on earth did you end up in the apparently esoteric topic of saving? Well, in many ways, uh, the the way I approach saving is in terms of the, the political and the social promotion of saving. So I'm not doing this as an economist. And that means that things like moral suasion, persuading people to save more money uh, for various reasons, it makes them a better person. So there's a moral argument. Uh, it's good for society because it means that society is orderly. The working class has, has savings. They can plan ahead. They won't engage in revolution. And it's also a political act, uh, particularly as uh, a new nation like Japan needs money. Uh, it can do it through taxes, but it also can do it through saving. And then there's the, uh, the issue of war, which is very political, and Japan, like other societies at war in the 20th century, needed lots of finance, and a lot of that came from saving. So a lot of this is about moral suasion, or suasion in various aspects, uh, so it actually follows quite directly from my earlier work. Okay, so there's many different things we can unpack there. You talked about the New Japan, and presumably you're thinking particularly of the 1868 Meiji Restoration and this sort of great transformation in in Japanese history in the 19th century. Could you tell me, we have the sort of popular story that Japanese people have always been uh, savers. Is that true historically? Well, in a certain sense, yes, uh, uh, but, but it's saving in a very different form. So the, the Japanese before the Meiji Restoration of 1868 were largely living on the land. They were engaged in agriculture and other primary industries. Uh, and so they had, Forms of saving, in other words, you save seeds for the next year, you save uh, rice for the winter. Uh, these are all forms of saving, but they're not monetary saving. So what was new after the Meiji Restoration uh, in Japan and also in many places in the 19th century was the move toward a monetary economy and people learning how to save money uh, and also save money in financial institutions, whether in banks or post offices. So these were new habits, uh, not totally new in the sense of accumulation, but the form was dramatically new. You had to trust your money to an institution that was impersonal, that 
wasn't your family, wasn't your friends, was a bank or a post office. So these things had to be learned in Japan as they had to be learned everywhere. And may I ask, what was the relationship between saving and wealth? I'm thinking um, of this famous set of um, woodblock prints that were published in the mid-1850s at the time of the Anse earthquake in Edo. And mm -hmm. there's a, the so-called catfish prints, catfish being the symbol of earthquakes in Japan. There's a famous print I have in mind of um, a catfish forcing a merchant in Edo, present-day Tokyo, to vomit gold mm -hmm. onto the uh, grateful commoners uh, below because um, he was seen to have kept money out of circulation and this was a wrong thing. So is that mm -hmm. a critique of, of wealth per se or what's going on in that kind of genre of print? Well, that sort of genre you see in Japan, but you also see it in Victorian England. You see it everywhere. There's a distinction made that goes way back, I mean, hundreds of years before the modern period, between uh, what's considered saving, which is a good thing, uh, planning ahead, uh, having money when you need it. Uh, but there's a distinction between that saving and hoarding. And hoarding is to be a miser. It's to, uh, uh, it's to engage in, I mean, these are sort of Christian terminology, not, but they have resonance in Japan as well, to engage in avarice and greed, to accumulate money for its own sake, to take it, as you say, out, out of circulation where it can't help. Uh, that's very different than the act of saving, which is kind of a life cycle thing, that you save when you have a surplus, uh, but then you may need to invest it next year in buying seeds for your, your, your crop, or you may need it for uh, an apprenticeship training or for the schooling of your children. So that's a, a saving for future consumption. It's very different from hoarding. And you mentioned uh, in one of your earlier answers about some of the institutions of new monetary saving. I think the post bank or the postal savings was absolutely crucial to this. I'm sure it was the same with you, but when I first started working in Japan, uh, you know, my colleagues took me to the bank to set up uh, my uh, account where my salary would be paid into, but they also then took me to the post office to set up my savings account. And the assumption was I would uh, have a separate account for savings, and it was as always associated with the institution of the post office. Um, that goes back to the early 1870s in Japan, is that right? That's right. Uh, so Japan's postal savings system was established in 1875, at least on a nationwide basis, a little bit before that. Uh, and when it was established, uh, so one of the things I do in the book is I talk about what's called transnational influences. It doesn't start because the Japanese simply had a brilliant idea and it didn't start because the Japanese are unique. On the contrary, it started, uh, you can trace this quite concretely, uh, to an enterprising young Meiji official who happens to go to London in the early 1870s, observes the first postal savings bank, which is the British Post Office Savings Bank, which had been established in 1861. Uh, it's considered kind of a cutting edge social reform, not an economic reform, because it gets the working poor to save. And uh, he's enthralled with this. Uh, and there's nothing distinctive about this, because all over Europe and in other parts of the world, people were also modeling themselves after the British system, or there was a Belgian system and others. And they were all starting at this moment. The Japanese were there very quickly. Uh, and the postal, the postal saving system made sense in Japan because 
unlike the situation, say, in the United States at the same time in the late 19th century, uh, there wasn't a system of modern banking. There had been sort of rudimentary uh, financial institutions in the early modern Tokugawa period, but there hadn't been modern banks. So, so uh, the postal savings system actually became very quickly a way of getting people to save, but also to accumulate for both uh, business and uh, state finance purposes uh, a ready supply of savings. So, so postal savings kind of steps into a system where it's a vacuum, where there isn't a well-established system of private banks. And you've mentioned now several countries in the course of your answers, Britain, Belgium, France, Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me, and you're very clear about this in the introduction to the book, that you're trying to debunk a set of myths here about Japan in particular, but Asia more generally, that, that somehow there's a culture uh, of saving. It's something to do with an Asian personality almost, that, that that's completely different from, from the West. And mm -hmm. you're debunking that by partly putting Japan into this, what you call a transnational context of comparison with particularly European countries. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we tend to, in history, we tend to do history through the lens of na the nation state, of national history. And those of us who study Japan, of course, we spend a lot of time studying the language, a lot of time studying the culture, all aspects of Japanese studies. But we tend to do it in a very insular way. We tend to assume that everything that happened in Japan happened because of internal developments. And I don't want to dismiss that because the internal developments, the indigenous uh, developments, the recent past, all of these things are very important. And Japan could not have changed as it did in the modern period uh, without uh, strong infrastructure and beliefs and things like, as we said, peasant accumulation uh, in this case. Uh, on the other hand, there is a sort of a great leap that occurs in the Meiji period and after the Meiji period. And we don't pay attention to the 20th century. It's as important as the Meiji period. Uh, and a lot of these leaps, they're not just small incremental steps. They're leaps because the imagination of people who formulate policy and programs in Japan, the imagination is, is suddenly broadened by the array of institutions and practices that look quite compelling outside. And as you say, mainly coming from Europe in the, in the late 19th century, some from America, but, but mainly from Europe with its variety of models and variety of countries. So, uh, so, so many things from savings campaigns in this case to, uh, to the postal saving system and things like that, uh, the propaganda and wartime uh, savings campaigns, a lot of these things are directly informed by what's happening in the rest of the world. And it doesn't mean that Japan is unique in copying or imitating it, because you have to think of it in terms of a circulation of knowledge. And everybody, every European country is looking at others. And sometimes um, by the early 20th century, European countries in the United States, for example, are looking at innovations in Japan. Uh, Japan is in the forefront of school savings programs, post office savings programs, war mobilization. The Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 5 is one of the first times that you get modern war savings campaigns. It actually spins back in the British become interested in it and incorporate part of that in their savings campaigns of the First World War. So it's a circulation uh, scheme that I have in my mind on, on how history changes, not the arrows don't go in one direction from the European core to the Asian periphery. They go 
they go back and forth, they go into Asia, they circulate around the world. And let's take, let me take you up on your invitation to talk about the 20th century now. I mean, if, if we were to be very blunt in trying to think about uh, savings, in, in this case in Japan in the 20th century, would you say that war is absolutely central to the practice and policy of saving? Uh, it's, it's certainly one of the big factors. It's not the only one. Uh, you would add uh, to war, even in peacetime, imperialism. Uh, so the fact that Japan very quickly from 1895 or even before becomes an expansive colonial power uh, with formal colonies, with informal interests, all of that costs money, and a lot of that comes from this finance system through postal savings, for example. So, so you could say in a sense that great power status in general, uh, whether there's a war on or not, is extremely important, but it's true that in Japan as elsewhere in the 20th century, uh, the world wars really accelerate uh, the intrusion of the state into uh, promoting saving because you're no longer simply getting people to save because it's good for them. You're no longer getting them to save because it's good for society. Now you're getting people to save uh, possibly for national survival. And this is partly because from the 1880s onwards, the central government basically takes over the postal savings scheme so it uses individual savings money for national infrastructure projects. Yes. yes, so it's particularly easy in a place like Japan or France that have these highly centralized uh, postal saving systems. Even Britain actually also has that. Uh, but even in places like uh, Imperial Germany, which is a federation, uh, much more loosely controlled uh, and doesn't have a postal saving system until actually 1939, uh, but even there the First World War manages to uh, mobilize uh, private banks and local savings banks. So it, it, regardless of the institutional structure you have in every modern society by the First World War, uh, savings is one of the thing, key things that a nation state mobilizes. And one of the arguments you make in the book, and I think has been consistent in your scholarship for many years now, is that the Second World War is not exceptional in Japan, that practices that are instituted, in this case in savings, during the mm -hmm. Second World War are absolutely crucial to our understanding of post-war Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, the, the sort of stereotype of the housewife mm -hmm. uh, who has scrupulous management of household finances. So there's, there's clearly a very important gender perspective to saving as we move into the mid-20th century and late-20th century here. Right. So, so gender plays, uh, changing gender constructions play an enormous role in this story. Uh, so most people are surprised to hear that before about the 1920s, in most Japanese households of various classes, uh, it was the norm for the patriarch, uh, the person who was legally the household head, uh, to be the person who controlled saving and consumption within the family. So if you were in the late 19th century or early 20th century, uh, when the state has kind of rudimentary savings campaigns, uh, they will uh, first uh, work through the intermediary of uh, the household head. There would be associations in villages and urban neighborhoods of the household head, name, well, almost in all cases, a male. 
I mean, 5% of the cases may be a, a widow, but, but almost always a male. Uh, and that just seemed natural to people. Uh, and that would have meant that in 1900, Japan would have looked very different than, say, Victorian England or America, uh, where you already had this very strong uh, role for the housewife in, in saving and consumption. So what happens in Japan for a number of reasons uh, and it's a gradual process from the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. Uh, more and more, there are messages coming from inside society, from uh, sort of an emerging group of women's leaders, uh, but also from kind of so-called enlightened bureaucrats in the state. Uh, so it, from a variety of places, there's this new idea that it's modern and even uh, nationalistic uh, to mobilize this untapped power of the woman, particularly the married woman. Uh, and while the husband is in industry or at war or in education, uh, that the woman at home should increasingly be seen as the manager of the household. Uh, bringing up the children, uh, which again wasn't necessarily the role of the wife. That was often done by, by siblings and things like that. Uh, so there were a, a number of roles from hygiene to saving uh, to nutrition to things like that that by the 1910s, 20s, 30s, you had these new housewives magazines and they were preaching that Things like if you lived in a household where the patriarch was still taking care of the money, you were really old school. You were really out of it. And the new wave is to be like women in, 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 in the Euro-American world, and women should be scientific, scientific mothers, scientific savers. They should rationalize consumption was a term. So this is happening in peacetime. It's partly the result of what various Japanese observers see in the First World War in Europe on home fronts, where they see women taking on all these roles, working in industry, but working in war bonds and war savings campaigns and things like increasing nutrition for children in wartime. So they come back and they say, well, it's not only modern for the housewife, the woman of the household to do this, but it's essential for Japan to continue to be a great power. So this then continues and builds in the Second World War, but there's a new impetus for it because men are really not there in the, in the Second World War. Japan is, by, by the Pacific War after 1941, in a state of full mobilization. Uh, men are either working in war factories in the cities or they're off in the front. Millions of men have been mobilized, so it becomes more important than ever for women to see themselves as almost the 100% managers of the household. And it continues into the post-war, in peacetime. That's great. Now, we focus a lot on Japan in this talk. But of course, the book is called Why America Spends While the World Saves. Um, and I wonder, are you making a basic argument here that America is the exception? In many ways, America is the exception. Uh, I actually increasingly in my life think America's in the exception in almost everything. Uh, so Americans, uh, they have this nice phrase, American exceptionalism. And when most Americans say it, they get uh, teary-eyed and uh, patriotic and we're, they think they're exceptional because they're so wonderful in every respect. Um, but in fact, a lot of our exceptional characteristics are not so attractive, uh, and uh, like owning guns and things like that. But, but getting back to the savings, 
Uh, America becomes quite exceptional. In the course of my book, I try and historicize this as I'm talking about Japan and other countries, which increasingly are deepening their savings institutions. America by the 1920s is going in the other direction. It has fairly weak popular savings institutions, has very weak postal savings system. Uh, a lot of its banks uh, in many states don't particularly handle the the accounts of small savers, uh, the working class, and things like that. So the Americans become exceptional in uh, never developing these strong, popular, widespread savings institutions. And at the same time from the 1920s, Americans start developing elaborate institutions of credit. So the opposite of saving, in other words, in various ways, loaning people money uh, to consume. I mean, one of them is housing loans, uh, and this is, uh, again, where America in the 1930s uh, during the Depression and the New Deal that responds to it makes uh, low-interest loans, has the state intrude, basically, to offer a system of housing loans that are much easier to pay back than they are in most countries, so this encourages borrowing for housing. Uh, and by, the, well, the 1920s, but especially the 1950s, there's this, there's this rapid expansion of consumer credit, uh, the credit that allows you to buy things. Uh, so in Britain, you would call this higher purchase, and we call it installment buying. Uh, you, you buy a refrigerator and you, uh, you pay it back uh, each month over uh, three-year period, for example. So that's kind of the 1950s. And so it means that Americans are experiencing a very different trajectory. Some of these things will happen later in European societies and in Japan, um, but most of them are much weaker than they are in the United States. And then it gets really crazy in America. So in the 1980s and 1990s, there is then a new leap in the provision of consumer credit, and we start offering these things called credit cards, which everybody in Europe thinks they have, but they don't really have them. Uh, these well, are in Britain they do. In Britain in they do. Britain, uh, yes, and Britain after the 1970s becomes very much like the United States, even more so in some respects. But the continent, no. Uh, and so they have these credit cards that proliferate after 1980. They allow you not just to charge something and have it paid from your bank account, um, but they allow you to borrow most of the money. You don't have to pay back your credit card bill at the end of the month. So this is called revolving credit. So Americans go into very serious debt. Then they have something called we call them second mortgages or home equity loans. You borrow against the rising value of your house. And this becomes the story in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, so people are bar borrowing up to 110% of the increased value of their house, what we call the equity. So it becomes the case that money is so cheap and so available that most Americans by about the year 2000 say, why would we bother to save when money is basically free? They just loan it to us and we don't even have to pay it back for the housing because our housing prices will go up. Anyway. Which brings us perhaps to a final question about yeah. the period in which you were writing the book. I mean, one can't avoid, I'm sure you couldn't avoid the fact that it was the middle of the 2008, post-2008 financial crisis. Um, as you were writing a book about savings from a global transnational perspective, yeah. um, did you find yourself thinking and, and being 
influenced by what you were seeing in the streets uh, as you traveled America? Very much, very much. So the book was conceived and researched in various phases. Originally, it was going to be a book just about Japanese savings promotion. Then I learned that Japan was very much in this network of European innovations and saving. So then it was Japan and Europe. And I didn't really know what to do with the United States because Americans can be very arrogant when they're at least on top. And uh, before 2008, uh, American economists, American media, Americans in general thought that they had solved all the, the problems of an economy, uh, that you could have everything at once, you could have prosperity, you could have credit, uh, and that societies like Japan and Germany that saved a lot of money, uh, they were hopeless. Uh, they were losers, uh, that it made no sense to save. You wanted money to stay in circulation. You wanted to stoke the fires of consumption and, and, and as hot as they could get. Uh, and so 2008, of course, meant that that paradigm crashed. Uh, and it meant that Americans, uh, at least for a very brief period, they got over it, but uh, they weren't uh, quite as confident that they had this triumphalist model anymore. Uh, and so as I experienced that, uh, then uh, the American component fit very nicely because it was the exception, American exceptionalism in the end hadn't been so victorious, hadn't been so healthy. So then my mission became trying to explain to Americans how they had gotten to where they were in 2008. What was the history of this binging and then this crash? On which note, Shelgan, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you.